Alright all you podcast listeners, welcome back to Nasty Pasty. Yes, it's me Andy Roberts in your ear canals yet again, with a fresh batch of delicious exploitation servings. Now as most of you know, I'm a huge video nasty buff, so much so that my passion has bled into the films released at the same time that didn't get caught in the huge censorship trawl. Now that's precisely what this podcast hopes to hail. Not the king, but the forgotten frighteners of the 60s, 70s and 80s that didn't get their days in court. Today, as you might have guessed from my terrible accent impression, we're whisking you off to the island of Australia for two films wrought in the crucible of the Aussies. They are 1982's Turkey Shoot and 1986's Dead End Drive-In. Now, when I put these films together, I didn't even realise that they were, in fact, directed by the same guy, Brian Trenchard-Smith. So apart from it being Ausploitation-themed, we've got a double directorial credit this week, too. So firstly, let's have a gander at what Ausploitation actually is. Now, Ausploitation is a term devised in 2008, a relatively broad categorisation of exploitation films of Australian origin. Now, Australia's ACB, which is the Australian Classification Board, had only introduced the R rating in 1971, which basically greenlit a lot of projects that were considering harder material to put on the market. So now, a whole host of sex, action and violence, previously blocked from exhibition, was now able to be shown legally for the first time, which prompted a lot of eager directors to start projects exploiting the new limits that they were allowed to play with. Frequent tropes in exploitation are themes of sexual activity, big action sequences, emphasis on vehicles, and also horror sequences. Now, as we'll see, soon see from our two films this week, dystopia and totalitarian governments are also popular themes, presumably due to a combination of the success of Mad Max and the recently relaxed film laws, which allowed filmmakers to now poke fun at the establishment that had held them back for so long. So anyhow, let's get on to our first film of the episode, which is 1982's Turkey Shoot. In the near future, a totalitarian government in Australia brutally maintains order by controlling its rebellious populace. Three strangers awaken in a government vehicle. Chris, a shopkeeper seized due to a rebel running into her store. Rita, a woman accused of being a prostitute. And Paul, a rebel who ran an anti-government radio broadcast. The vehicle deposits them at Camp 47, one of many government-run prison camps designed to modify and re-educate antisocial behaviours. 
run by a madman called Thatcher and his sadistic guard Ritter, any disobedience is swiftly dealt with using physical punishments or tortures. Thatcher discusses with his political friends, Mallory, Jennifer and Tito, a mysterious turkey shoot involving some of the prisoners. The politicians pick out particular victims and glaze over a variety of weapons to use, whilst Red, another guard, attempts to rape Chris in the shower, only to be stopped by Ritter, who explains that she's to be untouched for now. Thatcher relates to Chris Paul Rita and another prisoner called Dodge the next day that they've been chosen to participate in a special experiment, become the targets of the VIPs and survive the night in the jungle around the camp, and then they are free to leave. When another prisoner Griff causes trouble after Dodge steals his concealed knife, Griff is included in the experiment as a personal target for Thatcher and his guards. The prisoners are released into the wilderness, followed by the assassins who bring various tools to the fight. Jennifer brings a crossbow and a multitude of different tipped arrows. Thatcher brings a hunting rifle, while Tito brings a monstrous humanoid freak and a tractor. Dodge is caught by the latter and has a toe torn off by the creature who devours it. He's chased further and then heavily beaten before the monster decides to break his back. Thatcher takes pot shots at his target Paul, but is unable to land a hit. Griff is able to overpower Red and steals his rifle, but is unable to stop Jennifer repeatedly shooting him with arrows. As he crawls away injured, Thatcher runs him over and kills him with his vehicle. Meanwhile, Paul is caught by Tito, and the freak holds him to a tree, Tito intending to bisect him with the tractor. Paul stabs the freak in the eye, however, and flees, causing Tito to accidentally cut his freakish pet in half. Jennifer pursues her target Rita through the jungle on horseback, while Chris is pursued by her assassin Mallory, who has Rita assist him by setting swathes of the surrounding foliage on fire. Just as Mallory catches up with Chris, Paul saves her and then shoots Mallory in the groin, causing him to become engulfed by the out-of-control fire. Ritter pursues the pair and fights with Paul on a beach. When Ritter pulls a gun out on him, Chris is forced into action, hacking off Ritter's hands with a machete, causing him to slowly bleed to death. Jennifer ultimately catches Rita and lustfully threatens her with an arrow. She later walks away from Rita's naked corpse, having been stabbed all over with the arrow. Tito encounters Paul and Chris and chases them in his tractor. Chris acts as a decoy, distracting Tito enough for Paul to jam the machete into his skull. They steal his vehicle and weapons, ramming their way out of the arena and back into the camp, freeing the inmates and shooting up the guards using a turret gun. With the alarm triggered, an airstrike is ordered on the camp automatically from the mainland. Chris destroys the camp's communications and is then attacked by Jennifer. They struggle and Chris manages to jam one of the explosive arrows into Jennifer's face, killing her instantly. The inmates, now armed, destroy the camp and attempt escape, with, Co with Paul gorily destroying Thatcher with a hail of machine gun fire. The airstrike arrives, completely obliterating the camp and the guards. Paul and Chris smile at each other once more before walking off into the jungle, now free. Promiscuity among deviates, while not encouraged, is permitted within reason. However, pregnancy is a punishable offence. Deviates may not reproduce until their deviation is purged and they have been readmitted to society. Pregnant females will be aborted and then sterilised. Male deviates responsible for such pregnancies will be castrated. Venereal disease in either sex is a punishable offence and homosexuality is a capital crime. 
So that's the way it is, see? Whatever they say, you do. If they say frog, you jump. You don't stop to ask how high. What they did this morning when they beat up that girl. For nothing. You ain't been listening, kid. They don't need no reasons. They do it because they want to. For them, it's fun. But if you do what they say, they let you out? Maybe. Maybe not. A lot of Thatcher's deviates never get out of here. <laughs> Except carried out the back way. Me? I've been here a long time. And I know everything that goes on. There ain't nothing that goes on in here that Dodge don't know. Hey, Dodge, tell me something. If you're so smart, how come you're still here? I'm getting out soon. I've got it all planned. Oh, you going to bed smelling like a dead fish? I can't go in there. Not with them. Oh, honey. There's a few things you've got to learn real quick. First off, there's only a couple of ways out of here. And one of them ain't by playing a sweet little girl. Look what happened to you in that guard this morning. You certainly do have all the right equipment. And you'd better be ready to use it. Turkey Shoot is one of those films that's surprising for a number of reasons. While it's clearly a cheap exploitation film, it does effectively convey its own special style and panache. While the characters are not especially fleshed out, nor do they undergo dramatic character arcs, they are played with an enthusiastic energy that makes the proceedings all the more fun to watch. And just when you're starting to enjoy it just for bizarreness's sake, it's peppered with actually some fantastic gore sequences and some explosive action bits that really endear me to it. The script was originally written as a combination of the pre-code drama film I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang and the short story The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. Director Trenchard Smith felt that the two elements were too unbalanced in the first draft, especially as the plot was set in 1933 during Depression-era America. He decided to rewrite the script with a more universal tone, so he set the film in a dystopian future. The film was also to be set in Australia, mostly due to the 10BA tax exemption scheme, which allowed 150% tax concessions on productions by Australian filmmakers shot on location in Australia. The film was shot in Queensland, just outside of Cairns. In an effort to boost profits overseas, American or British actors like Olivia Hussey and Michael Petrovich were cast in the film's roles. Even though this was a relatively successful origin, the production was hit with various problems. Just two weeks before production, one of the film's investors backed out of the project, losing $700,000 from the film's budget of $3.2 million. Due to this last-minute change, the script had to undergo some drastic editing, removing some 15 pages, which included a four-page helicopter chase set at the beginning of the film. The shooting schedule was also reduced automatically from 44 days to a scant 30 days, which wouldn't have been so bad had it not been for the multitude of problems whilst shooting. Olivia Hussey, who played Chris, was very was not very fond of her time at all on the picture, and she kept quiet and to herself while not shooting her scenes. She was frequently upset and very stressed due to filming on location in the Aussie outback, apparently frightened of the threat of being harmed by Australia's diverse wildlife. The stress she was under was so profound that during the scene where she cuts Ritten's hands off, she misjudged a directorial instruction and slammed the machete down onto actor Roger Ward's real hands, narrowly avoiding them as he pulled them away just in the nick of time. 
Actress Linda Stoner, who played the unfortunate Rita, she had some issues during filming too. She refused to cut open a real dead fish in one scene due to her love of animals, forcing the special effects department to fashion a fake one for her to use. She also objected to appearing nude in the film, and found out on set that her death was to be portrayed naked. She outright refused, understandably so, as she took on the job with the promise of no nudity. But after discussing it with director Trenchard Smith, she agreed to compromise and appear naked from the rear only. She still regretted making the scene, however, after the production was over. Steve Railsback, who played Paul, also insisted on method acting for his role, which apparently irked actor Michael Craig, who played Thatcher, presumably because the production didn't really require such an authentic acting style. Behind the scenes, there was some tension too, as British actor David Hemmings, who worked on Turkey Shoot as an executive producer, shot some second unit footage, and made it clear that he cared little for Trenchard Smith's efforts. Tensions rose to such a degree that Trenchard Smith poured beer over Hemmings in the production office after he made fun of him in front of his family, apparently made worse by Trenchard Smith's knowledge of an affair that Hemmings was pursuing with an unknown cast member on the film. Though the production was fraught with problems left, right and centre, the end product is a real treat to exploitation lovers. Way before Battle Royale and the Hunger Games were even conceived, there's some rapid, quick-fire edited sensationalist footage that kickstarts the film, depicting the social anarchy that the totalitarian government are trying to stem. When the eponymous turkey shoot actually starts, there's a real dedication to pace and action, with smatterings of Italian cannibal movies here and there, evoked by the heavily synthesised soundtrack, jungle locations, heavy gore, and skeletal decomposed bodies strewn about a jungle. The aforementioned gore sequences are also the icing of a very sweet-tasting cake, with some delicious deaths on display. We've got a man being shot at multiple times with arrows before being quite graphically run over with a car, a man being impaled by a jungle trap, a woman being slashed and stabbed off-screen, though, a man burning to death, a man having his hands lopped off, a man's head being cleaved in two, a woman's head exploding, and then a guy being completely obliterated by machine gun fire. All this, of course, is mixed in with over-the-top acting and an ungodly amount of explosions. Rather impressive, though, for a low-budget picture. What's also impressive is that the film manages to pack in rather a lot of juicy subtext, making it resemble a quite well-made satire. The totalitarian government in power during Turkey Shoot seemed to be a parody of far-right conservative politics. In one scene, Charles Thatcher and his friend Secretary Mallory are playing chess, but the pieces are all Aboriginal artefacts, almost symbolising the government's altering of history and using their people as mere pawns. Their motto, freedom is obedience, obedience is work, work is life, is almost a paraphrasing of the Nazi slogan, Arbeit macht frei, which translates to work sets you free. In a similar way to how the Jews were rounded up by the Nazis, the people in Turkey Shoot are branded deviants, and referred to as the lowest form of life on Earth, sent to camps in order to modify and correct their behaviour, but ultimately just an excuse to mercilessly beat them, or just outright kill them. Complete control is enforced over every aspect of the deviant individual, including their sexual behaviour, Pregnancies in females are aborted, and then the women are sterilised, the males responsible are castrated, while homosexuality is punished with death. There's certainly a heavy connotation of all this mocking the ideas of modern conservative politics. 
Not only is Margaret Thatcher, the Conservative Prime Minister of the UK, referenced in the character of Charles, but the outfits of him, Jennifer and Tito even resemble clergymen at one point, linking this element of control with religion and the fact that sometimes there's no separation between church and state. There's also an us-versus-them mentality in the way that they refer to the prisoners, with Tito stating, excess is what makes life worth living, for people like us. As is the case with a lot of far-right mentalities, there's also an innate hypocrisy in their actions. They imprison people for aiding a rebellion, even indirectly, whilst indulging in personal acts of murder and terrorisation themselves. They prevent deviants from falling pregnant, despite the fact that Red and Secretary Mallory have serious sexual designs on Chris. And whilst homosexuality is punishable by death, Jennifer chooses Rita to be her victim, with a clearly lesbian lust towards her. Rita's corpse is also stripped before she's killed, implying that Jennifer did in fact sexually abuse her before ending her life. Stephen Railsback, who played Paul, later went on to appear in the X-Files episode as a psychotic abductee Dwayne Barry, as well as appearances in Alligator 2, The Mutation, Supernatural, and Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects. Olivia Hussey we've mentioned before in our very first episode where we covered Black Christmas. Has it really been that long? She'd of course been in that movie as well as the TV film Stephen King's It, and also Psycho 4, The Beginning. Carmen Duncan, who played the sadistic Jennifer, later popped up in an episode of Ash vs. the Evil Dead, whilst Bill Young had made small appearances in The Matrix and the Aussie soap opera Home and Away. But he also, bizarrely, has a special effects credit on Star Wars Episode 3. John Lay, who played the maniacally-haired Dodge, he'd appeared in Soap Opera Neighbours, uh, the first Mad Max film, and he also reappeared in Trenchard Smith's film BMX Bandits. Roger Ward, who played the imposing Ritter, was also from Mad Max 1, whilst Linda Stoner, who played Rita, went on to appear in Prisoner Cell Block H and Home and Away. Director Brian Trenchard-Smith would go on to direct 1983's BMX Bandits, which starred Nicole Kidman in her introductory role, and also the next film in our episode, the stylish Dead End Drive-In. He also directed a couple of episodes of Mission Impossible, Night of the Demons 2, and the director video horror flicks Leprechaun 3 and Leprechaun 4 in Space. Writers John George and Neil D. Hicks later wrote the screenplay for the slasher film The Final Terror, whilst their co-writer George Schenk, he went on to become a producer, working prominently on the US TV show NCIS. Producer Brian Cook, he later worked on Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. He was actually more of an assistant director who'd worked in this capacity on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, The Wicker Man, The Shining, Heaven's Gate, Stella, and the aforementioned Stanley Kubrick film Eyes Wide Shut. Fellow producer John Daly, he worked on a small number of recognisable titles, such as The Terminator, Return of the Living Dead, Platoon, and the black comedy Vampire's Kiss with Nicolas Cage. William Feynman, another producer on Turkey Shoot, he'd worked previously on the Section 3 nasty film Dead Kids, which is sometimes known as Strange Behaviour, while some second unit photography and producing was done by actor David Hemmings, who played the main character in Dario Argento's Deep Red, also a Section 3 title. Hemmings would also later appear in Ridley Scott's Gladiator, uh, Gangs of New York and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, as well as doing some producing on both Turkey Shoot and Dead Kids. The music was done by composer Brian May, who'd worked on the first two instalments of the Mad Max franchise, and later the music of Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. 
Editor Alan Lake was seemingly a personal favourite of Trenchard Smith's, returning on both BMX Bandits and our other film of this week, Dead End Drive-In. The special makeup effects, however, were done by a large variety of crew members, one of which was Bob McCarran, who'd come from Mad Max 2. He'd go on to work on The Howling 3, uh, New Zealand Splatterfest Brain Dead, which is known in America as Dead Alive, uh, Body Melt, The Matrix, and also Vertical Limit. Fellow makeup artist Anne Popishiel worked in a similar role in 1981's Dead Kids. The special effects guys themselves, however, have credits for multiple large productions. Peter Hutchinson worked on Straw Dogs, Haunted, Star Wars Episode One, Die Another Day, Batman Begins, and Moon, while John Steers worked on loads of Bond films like From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, The Man With The Golden Gun, and On Her Majesty's Secret Service, as well as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Star Wars Episode Four, and The Mask of Zorro. But another guy who worked on the special effects was uncredited, and that was Brian Cox. He went on to Mad Max 3, Beyond Thunderdrome, The Thin Red Line, The Matrix, Mission Impossible 2, Moulin Rouge, Superman Returns, The Wolverine, San Andreas, Thor Ragnarok, and the as-yet-unreleased Aquaman movie. Also of note is assistant director Terry Needham, who was actually a rather accomplished assistant director. He worked on a huge plethora of films like Heaven's Gate, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Rambo 3, 1998's The Avengers, uh, Gladiator, Hannibal, Black Hawk Down, Viva Vendetta, The Golden Compass, Cloud Atlas, and also Jupiter Ascending. The film was not received particularly well in its native Australia, where it was derided for its over-the-top violence and cheap production values. It flopped commercially too, but it did manage to make a rather tidy profit overseas, particularly in the UK and the US, where it cleaned up the box office. In the USA, it was shown under the title Escape 2000, while it was under the original title in Britain. It was oddly popular in the UK, despite the cinema print being heavily censored, having a total of 5 minutes and 42 seconds removed, including Ritter violently beating a young girl, the prisoner being burned alive, Griff being run over and details of his injuries, the shot of Rita's de- dead naked body, Ritter's hands being severed, the head cleaving, and Thatcher being obliterated by the machine gun fire, leaving pretty much most of the film's violence on the cutting floor. The same version was released by Guild Video in 1983, smack dab in the centre of the controversy. Now, Guild were already under fire for releasing both the video nasty, Terrorize, and the Section 3 title, Foxy Brown, so the film may have attracted some slight attention, but the relatively blood-free print would ensure that the DPP would never consider this a threat. The cuts persisted on this film, though, for quite some time, even on its 1993 release under the title Blood Camp Thatcher. It wasn't until 2003 when Vipco managed to get the film past fully uncut, and it has been ever since on its reissues in 2007 onwards. And that was Turkey Shoot, everybody. Really, really liked this one. Quite cheesy, quite silly, and quite a good tone to the whole proceeding, and actually just surprisingly gory during the money shots. So let's move on, though, to our next film, which is Dead End Drive-In.
In the late 80s, a large number of both economic and social disasters strike society in Australia, causing the government to invoke emergency powers to handle the crisis. Krabs, a health-conscious teen, rides with his tow-truck brother Frank on the way to a car accident. Cars, now a valuable rare commodity. The scene is then interrupted by cowboys, a gang of street thugs who try to steal the car parts. Krabs is attacked again in the same fashion the next day, leading him to lend Frank's vintage Chevy to take his girlfriend Carmen on a date. They head to the Star Drive-In and get comfortable, making love in the back seat. Unknown persons suddenly steal the car tyres and Krabs follows them, only to discover that it's the police who have done it. The drive-in's owner, Thompson, is rather nonplussed by Krabs' report of stolen wheels, and Krabs is shocked to find that most of the cars in the drive-in are still there in the morning. Thompson reveals that the pair are now stuck indefinitely until the government decides otherwise, and gives them meal tickets to last them for a week. While Krabs is clearly not happy with the idea, struggling to fix the car with anything he can find, Carmen takes a shower and begins to bond with some of the women at the drive-in. Thompson explains to Krabs that people at the drive-in have now learned to accept their fate, and that struggling against the system is futile. After discovering that the fences are electrified, Krabs implores some of the others to care, but no to no avail. After getting into a punch-up with a demented guy called Hazza, Krabs finds that his car has also been drained of petrol, and seizes the opportunity to raid a new arrival of vehicles in the drive-in for wheels. A group of Asians also arrive, revealing an intense anti-Asian hatred borne by the majority of the drive-in. Carmen, too, buys into the same notion as her peers, causing Krabs to lose hope that she will ever want to leave with him. He siphons petrol from a police vehicle when they bring drugs to distribute amongst the drive-in, but he's dismayed to see that his engine is missing in the morning. He accuses Thompson of trying to interfere and warns him to stay out of his way. A meeting is then held at the drive-in to discuss the Asians being a problem, which is merely an opportunity for the drive-in to air their racist views. Attended to by pretty much everyone except Krabs, he takes the opportunity to seize a tow truck and attempts escape. Thompson, however, recognises him and alerts the police, starting a chase that destroys a large portion of the drive-in. Managing to flee on foot, he encounters Carmen again, who refuses to leave with him. Knowing that he cannot convince her, he bids her goodbye and goes to Thompson, having him delete Krabs' profile off the computer system at gunpoint. A police officer comes in during this, resulting in a struggle that leaves Thompson and the officer dead. Not leaving it to chance, Krabs occupies a police van and accelerates with high speed towards a ramp, crashing through the drive-in's billboard and speeding off down the road, away from the drive-in for good. Where you been? I don't like being out there with them around. Who's them? 50 million Asians out there. <laughs> Why be scared of them? They could rape me or anything. Nah. Yes, they could. <laughs> if you're a man, you'd do something about it. Listen, they're not the enemy. They're prisoners, just like us. Yeah, well, something ought to be done. Yeah? Like what? Well, I don't know. They should limit how many can come here. <laughs> You've really been conned, haven't you? Limit the numbers and everything will be great. Jesus, have a look around. This is a slum. Even with only a few people, it'd still be a slum. Well, it doesn't have to be. What? <laughs> you reckon we all sit around playing happy families, do you? 
Everything in its place, men down the gents drinking beer, girls and the ladies getting their hair done. People can't have a life in here. All they can have is a heap of shit movies and a gut full of poisonous hamburger. I'll tell you where bloody life is. Out there. Well, not for people like us. Hey, hey, hey. Come with me. Please. God, Jimmy, can't you see? This is all we've got. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I can see. That's just the trouble. Hey, you won't get far without these. Compared with Turkey Shoot, Dead End Drive-In is a much more visually accomplished piece of cinema, the screen oozing everything nostalgic and typical of the 80s. The vibrant look and feel of the film right from the get-go is absolutely eye-popping, with vibrant oranges clashing with intense blues and neon purples. There's heavy industry meeting with deprived city streets, slathered in graffiti and discarded newspapers. Deviants drive down the streets like Mad Max-style gangs, and VHS stores with hits like Rambo Takes Russia are front and centre in this dystopian fantasy. The drive-in itself is quite a sight to behold. It just oozes that grime and colour of the 80s. The cafe is rife with neon pentagrams, graffiti and burger and soda diner bar. They've literally made a shantytown like society out of cartloads of cars. A bit like a hellish version of a car boot sale. And there's certainly some influence from Mad Max too, with some punk-style hairdos, and there's even a woman with glow lights as a bikini. While it's pretty to look at, the film has much going for it in the background too. Our main hero is Krabs. Starts off the film with jogging past all the commercial nature of this world. Factories, loose newspapers, video shops and diners. Seemingly a health-conscious young man who eschews drinking too many Fosters or indulging in recreational drugs, Krabs is the only character seemingly bothered by the fact that he and other people of his age are trapped in a drive-in, seemingly in a governmental gambit to contain rebellious youth. Carmen, by another example, is unfortunately the complete opposite. Completely carefree, uncaring with what she crams into her body, and easily led by others' opinions without much thought on her part. Because of the highly stylized nature of the film's imagery and metaphors, it's almost as though the drive-in is symbolic of everything glorious of the 80s. Grindhouse movies, recreational drug-taking, drunk food, flashy cars, insane fashions and a disregard for authority. Krabs, symbolically then, is the new modern teenager. He's conscious of authority, but relatively respectful. He freely exercises, he eschews junk food, and refuses to settle down for his fate at the drive-in. It's therefore memorable how he actually overcomes the system in the end and manages to escape in the final scene, even leaving Carmen behind due to her attitude seemingly being unchanged. It does unfortunately, however, have the effect of making Krabs look like quite a decent person, and Carmen seem a little fake and contrived, without much personality of her own. By leaving, he's symbolically leaving the 80s behind. Rather a poignant message when you consider the film was actually made in the late 80s. The anti-Asian sentiment expressed by the drive-in's residents, however, is extremely similar to how a typical totalitarian society would work. Deprive and mistreat the people, and for maximum effect, introduce a scapegoat. And through hearsay and media, have the people blame all their problems on the scapegoat. 
This is most obvious in Carmen's character, who buys entirely into the notion that the Asians are the cause of all their problems. In her own words, they could rape me or anything. They should limit how many can be let in. Most unfortunately, the same technique and terminology is used in real life, such as European Jews being blamed for Germany's descent into disorder during the 40s, and even today, with migrants being vilified for entering our countries, or Muslims being blamed for all acts of terrorism on the West. Director Trenchard Smith had visited the very same drive-in featured in the film as a youth in 1970 to see the 1965 film Major Dundee. The drive-in was located in Sydney, New South Wales, in Australia, but unfortunately it has since been demolished. Filming started in 1985 and took around 35 days in total to complete. The schedule was formulated to have as much night shooting as possible, as the majority of the film was set at night. This was achieved by starting the shoot in late afternoon and then going late until 5am in the morning. To accurately show the huge amount of motor vehicles in the film, the production team purchased 400 cars in total, in various states of disrepair, at a bargain price of 100 Australian dollars each. Crabs's, or indeed his brother Frank's, car is a lovely 1956 red Chevrolet. Also vehicle-related, the impressive stunt jump in the film's climax pulled off by Krabs, which was in reality done by stuntman Guy Norris, it broke a world record at the time that the film was made, jumping a whopping 163 feet in the air, quite literally ending the film with a bang. Eagle-eyed viewers, however, might notice that the film playing at the drive-in, when Carmen and Krabs arrive, is actually the previous film that we've covered, Turkey Shoot. Another little interesting nugget about this, one of the scenes featured in in this is Jennifer's head explosion, which is a scene that caused the latter film to garner an R rating from the MPAA. Very interesting then that the same scene is shown in Dead End Drive-In, and it didn't gain an R rating, almost like it's a meta insult to these censors. There were also plans to redub the film in a similar fashion to Mad Max, with American voices in place of the Australian voices. The new dub, however, performed so poorly with test audiences that the US distributor was ultimately found out not to have the right to use the new track, so the film was ultimately released with the Aussie accents. I'm glad, really, because I think they come across rather well. Our main protagonist, Krabs, was played by Ned Manning, who'd later appear in Home and Away, Neighbours, and also Soldier Soldier. Now, allegedly, he lied to Trenchard Smith about his age, claiming to be just 24, when actually he was in fact 36 at the time of filming. If you ask me, he looks bloody good considering he was 36. Natalie McCurry, who played Carmen, she also joined Manning on Home and Away in the 90s, but she sadly passed away at the very young age of 48 to cancer. There's also a bit of a theme running here, though, as Peter Whitford, who played the drive-in proprietor Thompson, he also had a role in Home and Away as well as some minor appearances in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge and the TV sci-fi series Farscape. Other minor characters, like Hazza, played dementedly well by Wilbur Wilde, I have to say. He had no other appearances of note, unfortunately, whilst David Gibson, who played the eponymous Dave, went on to become a producer, mainly in Australian TV. Sandy Lillingston, who played Beth, she appeared in Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdrome, and, yes, Home and Away again. Oddly, she also appeared as the voice of Amy in the live-action children's programme Bananas in Pyjamas. Frank, who boasts the great line, Fuck it, 
I'm Strong Enough, after doing two reps on a weight, was played by Ollie Hall, who was both an actor and a stuntman on Mad Max 3. Faye, another minor character, she was played by Lynn Collingwood, who... Alright, I'll stop. She was also in Home and Away. There was a lot of Australian soap stars in it, okay? We've already glazed over director Brian Trenchard-Smith, so we'll have a look now at some of the other crew members, first of which is composer Frank Strangio, who'd returned from his work on BMX Bandits, and he'd later go on to compose Power Rangers Ninja Storm in the early 2000s. Cinematographer Paul Murphy equally went on to work on Mighty Morphin Power Rangers The Movie, as well as 1988's Emerald City. Alan Lake, we've mentioned before, he returned to edit this film, while some of the special effects were done by Lee Smith, who is arguably a very big name right now, with credits on films like The Howling 3, Robocop 2, The Truman Show, Batman Begins, Inception, The Dark Knight, Elysium, Spectre, Interstellar, Dark Knight Rises, Dunkirk, and as the yet unreleased X-Men Dark Phoenix. Other special effects guy, Alan Maxwell, he came from working on Mad Max 3, and he'd go on to work on Crocodile Dundee 2, and 1992's Fortress, starring Christopher Lambert. Chris Murray, another special effects guy, he'd worked on the original Mad Max, and he went on to do the pyrotechnic effects on multiple titles, such as Superman Returns, and The Marine with John Cena. Assistant director John Titley, yes, that is his name, deserves a mention due to him working on 1989's Dead Calm, as well as the 1989 version of The Punisher. Unfortunately, this film was not particularly successful in Australia either, grossing just $68,000 at the box office. And it didn't have much luck over in the UK either, as it doesn't appear to have been in the cinemas, and it only had a VHS release in 1987, way after the nasties furore had actually died down. It was, however, cut by 16 seconds, presumably due to the sex scene between Carmen O'Krabs, or possibly the shotgun blast of Thompson. It is a little unclear, because there's not really much violence in the film, with the exception of the aforementioned shooting, and there's a fight between Krabs and Hazard that does get quite heated and bloody. It does, of course, have an uncut Blu-ray release now from Arrow Video, and it really brings out that crispy, neon-coated nostalgia for the HD era. And it's been rated 15-2, clearly shows how mild this film is. I'm actually very surprised that they found anything to cut. And that was Dead End Driving, and it's our final bit of fun for this week, y'all. I do have to love you and leave you now, but if you guys do have anything to say about these two Aussie beauties, don't be shy to get in touch and let me know what you thought of them. I do love a forum where we can all just talk about movies like this. Now, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for Nasty Pasty Podcast, or you can drop me a mail at nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. 
Now, next week, we've got two films that I'm sure some people are going to love. One of them is my personal favourite. Now, as we've been to one side of the world this week, we're at another destination in the world next week. The rich, wondrous nation of Canada. We're covering two Canucksploitation slasher films that are heavy on thrills and both filmed in Canada. They are 1980's Terror Train and 1981's My Bloody Valentine. I'm extremely excited for next week, and do drop me a tweet if you've seen these two upcoming ones too. I'd love to hear your opinions. But that's it for now, so take care, don't do anything I wouldn't do, and thanks very much for listening to the Nasty Pasty Podcast. Adios, amigos. (laughs) 